Good morning. This is Jake Brown, and I'm the preacher at Liberty Christian Church in beautiful Madison, Indiana. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m., and you can find us at 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. I want you to know this morning that, that we would love to have you come join us in person Sundays at 1030. We love to meet new people, and we love to make ourselves available to help others learn the true story of who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, and how to personally get in on the story. Well, it's just about time for the sermon to start, so turn up the volume, tune out the distractions, and it's my prayer that you find this morning's message engaging and meaningful. It was 62 or 63 AD and nearing the end of Nero's reign over the Roman Empire. Nero was, of course, a tyrant famous for making human street lamps out of Christians. At this time in history, the Apostle Paul was renting a place in the capital city of Rome, uh, not because of something that he saw in Rome's housing market at the time. This was actually Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. Paul, this man who was known for covering so many miles for Christ, uh, going house to house at times, teaching, preaching, and encouraging, was at this time unable to leave those rented quarters. In fact, he had to wear a long chain, which was connected at the other end to a Roman soldier around the clock. Paul, in this situation, now relied on people to come to him. He couldn't go to them. Well, it was during this time in history and this time in Paul's life that he seems to have written four letters that we have in our Bibles. We call them his prison epistles. They are Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. I want to spend at least the next few Sundays looking through Paul's letter to the Philippians because it's a unique letter. It's a unique letter that's full of very practical lessons. And I'm calling this series My Beloved because Paul absolutely loves this church and he calls them My Beloved a couple of different times here. Paul loves the Philippian church. In fact, this letter that he wrote to the Philippians may be Paul's most affectionate letter that we have. Maybe it's because Philippi was the first European city where Paul preached the gospel. Maybe it was the people. Maybe it was Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer along with his household. All these people he converted there, the, the people of Philippi. I don't know, but I do know that sandwiched between every expression of love and thanksgiving for the Philippian church are these rich, practical uh, lessons in Christian living. It's not deep, heady, theological, scholarly kind of stuff like we find in Paul's letter to the Romans. It's lifestyle stuff. It's behavioral stuff. It's relational stuff. It's attitude stuff. And it's good stuff. So if you haven't done so already, crack those Bibles open to Philippians chapter 1 and start reading with me in the very first verse. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, the Bible says this, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. 
For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. This morning's message is called Centered in the Gospel. Centered in the Gospel. I call it that because Paul covers four big topics here in chapter 1, and in each one of these topics there are lessons to learn about being centered in the gospel. Let's jump right in. The, the first section of Paul's letter has to do with the Philippians' participation 
in the gospel, the Philippians' participation in the gospel. In verses 3 through 11, Paul writes about how he thanks God and he prays for the Philippians with joy because of their participation in the gospel. And he talks a little bit about how uh, they participated and what it meant to him. And so I want us to understand that participation creates joy in others. Specifically, participation in the gospel creates joy in others. Look, it's hard to do it alone. Whether you're out there reaping a great harvest or experiencing an evangelistic drought, it is so much better when others are involved, when others are participating along with you. Paul was fortunate to have support from the Philippians essentially from day one. In verses 3 through 5, he wrote, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Listen to this. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. As you follow Paul's story, you see that as he left Philippi and came to Thessalonica, the Philippians sent him a gift while he was there. We ought to be like the Philippians and always actively participate in the gospel. Speak it to your neighbors, your friends, your family, and anybody who will listen. Financially support great missions and missionaries who are going into all the world and preaching the gospel. Pray for your brothers and sisters who are boldly proclaiming Christ. Physically go and visit and minister to the ones that you can and invite these ones into your homes as well. There's a a variety of ways that we can and should be participating in the gospel And I like Paul's words there in verses 6 through 8. Specifically in verse 6, he writes, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In essence, Paul is expressing his confidence that God will continue to partner with these gospel participants, these men and women who do whatever they can from wherever they can to partner in the proclamation of the gospel. Paul knew that God would continue to bless and to provide to to work with and for these faithful people so that they could continue doing this kind of work. I wonder how much better our lives would be if we were intentional and we shifted more of our resources toward participating with others to spread the gospel far and wide. How much closer would we be to God? How much stronger would our relationship be with Christ? Look, if you were working with God's servants to spread God's word and God was working with you to see to it that you were able to continue to do that good work, it would just be a never-ending cycle of growing closer and closer and closer to him. In fact, I believe we would experience the answer to Paul's prayer that he shares in verses 9 through 11. Remember what Paul wrote there? He said, "...and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more." in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is praying here that the good work that the Philippians are doing in participating in the gospel, that this would continue to grow, that their love that that, that causes them to do this, that it would continue to grow, that their love for God's messengers and participating with those messengers would abound or, or overflow, we might say. 
But Paul puts some some restraints on this abounding love, and that's very important. He says in verse 9, he, he adds in real knowledge and all discernment, right? He wants their love to abound or overflow more and more, but he says in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent. The, the idea is that they would be careful and actually give thought and consideration to how and who they supported and participated with. There are a lot of so-called religious people who like to just spread the love all around, throw the mission money to anyone and everyone, flash the cash to, to anyone wearing a cross around their neck. Paul says that the Philippians love will grow more and more. He wants it. He prays that it will grow more and more, but that it would do so wisely with, with solid discernment. Listen to what John wrote in 2 John verses 9 through 11. He said, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Now listen to verses 10 and 11. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. The Bible specifically teaches us to be careful with who we support, who we support and thereby participate with. The next section of Paul's letter is his update concerning the progress of the gospel. This is the next section uh, where he talks about the progress of the gospel. Uh, Paul said there in verse 12, And I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Do you recall what Paul's circumstances were? At a minimum, we know that Paul is in Roman custody, awaiting a trial that may or may not happen, and that may or may not result in his being executed, guarding day and night, or being guarded day and night by Roman soldiers, physically chained 24-7 to his Roman guard, and unable to leave his rented quarters. And Paul says that he wants the Philippians to know that it's all turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. This is one of those Joseph moments. You know what I mean? Those angry Jews that got me into trouble in the first place meant to do harm to me, but God meant it for good, right? Sounds like something Joseph would say. There's a lesson here. God can make the best of bad situations. In fact, God has kind of made a career of redeeming hopeless situations. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're thrown into a giant furnace for their loyalty to the Lord. Well, they end up not burned. They don't even smell like smoke. Daniel's prayer life earned him an overnight visit in the lion's den. And remember, the lions didn't even open their mouths all night long. Moses is born at what seems like exactly the wrong time. By law, he has to be thrown into the Nile River as he, right after he's born, while he's a baby. But God raises him up. God uses him to lead his chosen people out of their bondage in Egypt. Stephen, remember him? He, he's martyred for preaching a gospel sermon. The huge growing church in and around Jerusalem now is scattered far and wide. But guess what? Prophecy is fulfilled. The gospel goes out to the whole world and the church of Christ thrives because of this. And this is just how God does business. So it should come as no surprise that Paul's temporary imprisonment would actually help the cause. 
In the same way, we shouldn't be surprised to see some of our difficult moments being used by God for the greater progress of the gospel. God makes the best out of bad situations, and if he doesn't waste opportunities, neither should we. Paul said in verse 13 that his imprisonment in the cause of Christ had become known, well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. Paul took advantage of what looked like a disadvantage. In Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31, Scripture records for us, it says that he, that being Paul, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Instead of being isolated, Paul chose to influence others. When we have opportunities, when we go to people or when they come to us, when we perhaps have a captive audience like the Roman soldiers, do we, like Paul, preach the kingdom of God and teach concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness? Even in the tough circumstances, that's how the gospel makes progress. In addition to directly influencing others in this way uh, with the gospel message, the gospel also makes progress when we inspire others. Paul explains in verse 14 that his situation had inspired others to preach Christ. His imprisonment for the cause of Christ has given others, the scripture says, the courage to speak the word of God without fear. When we don't let the circumstances dampen our faith and our zeal for Christ, it can be inspiring to others. And guess what happens? The gospel makes serious progress. And when the gospel makes progress, Christ is exalted. Paul writes about this in verses 15 through 20. If Christ is exalted, Paul calls it a win for the gospel, right? Ultimately, that's Paul's big concern. At this time in his life, with all the things that are going on, uh, you know, uh, the situation he's in, his um, living situation, uh, the fact that this trial that he's um, getting ready, uh, he thinks he's going to eventually get to have, is kind of in limbo. Um, the fact that there are people out there preaching Christ, uh, apparently accurately, but with bad motives, impure motives. They, they're seeking to do Paul harm since they know he can't come out and defend himself or, or come out and preach himself. You know, all these things, at this time, we might expect Paul to be concerned about his own current set of circumstances, but that's not the case at all. In verses 19 and 20, he says that he has confidence and trust in the Lord to deliver him. He trusts God to, to take care of everything. His only concern is that Christ would be exalted through whatever happens. Uh, let me tell you, what a difference maker this kind of attitude would be in the church of Christ today. We wouldn't waste our time going in circles, going the wrong way, going after the wrong thing, going down the wrong path, going off the path, going down rabbit trails. We just keep our head down, our hand to the plow, and work to exalt Christ come what may. Now, the third section of Paul's letter shows us how ultimately the Christian finds his or her purpose in the gospel. We find our purpose in the gospel. In verses 21 through 26, Paul shows us his understanding that Christ is our purpose in life and in death. Paul writes those oh-so-famous words in verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, there are obviously uh, two facts that need to be inspected here. Uh, to live on, to live in Christ, live on in Christ, is to be like Christ. 
to love like him, to preach like him, to serve like him, to be accountable like him, to be holy like him, to be concerned about what he was concerned about, to love what he loved, to hate what he hated, to forgive like he forgave. And the list goes on and on and on. To live on in Christ is to be like Christ. And to die is to be with Christ. That's how it's gained. We see very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Paul writes there in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, he says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. When Stephen was being stoned to death for the sake of Christ, Scripture says in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, that he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Talk about being centered in the gospel. It's our purpose. It's our everything. To live is to be like Christ, the one who died, was buried, and rose again for us. To die is to be with Christ, the one who died for our sins, was buried, and rose from death to eternal life. Now, much like Paul we're all alive right now. <laughs> and for the foreseeable future, that is our situation. In verses 22 through 26, we might find a lesson on what we ought to be doing with this time that God has given us. Paul said in verse 22 that continued life here on this earth will mean fruitful labor. I want you to understand that's not just Paul's purpose. That's our purpose as Christians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Scripture says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be working. We're supposed to be serving. God has stuff for us to do. We're supposed to be performing fruitful labor. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. There's one of the things we're supposed to be doing. In James 2, verse 26, it, James says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. We're not just supposed to be sitting around here uh, claiming to have faith. We're supposed to be putting our faith to work, proving our faith through our works. Paul understood this purpose for life on earth, and he taught it to the first century church. The 21st century church would do well to take a long, hard look at this. If we live on in the flesh, it means fruitful labor for us. God's giving you time on this earth to do something for his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, what are you doing with the time you've been given? Is it fruitful labor? Now, the fourth and final section of uh, this first chapter shows us how our destiny, and even the destiny of others, is proven through the gospel. It's proven through the gospel. In the first part of verse 27, Paul exhorts the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Oh, how that simple statement would change the lives of so many if it were uttered at just the right times. When you're cut off in traffic, when a family member is pushing your buttons, when your boss is on a power trip, when someone deeply disappoints you, when someone abandons you, when you choose to view a particular movie, when you're choosing your words around coworkers, when you lose someone you're close to, only conduct yourselves in a manner 
worthy of the gospel of Christ. I can only imagine how that reminder at just the right time could affect our lives. And part of our living in a manner worthy of the gospel involves our conscious effort to stand firm together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, in one spirit, with one mind, as Paul mentions toward the end there of verse 27. Paul wants the Philippians to strive together, united with one another in the, in the spirit and with the mind of Christ. The church, guys, is an unstoppable force when we all humbly get on the same page, living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, striving together in one spirit and with one mind. There is no enemy that ought to alarm us, as Paul says there in verse 28. And when we are united like this and unshakable like this, Paul says it proves our opponents have it coming. Paul says it's a sign of destruction for them. They're on the wrong side. They can see it clearly. There's something about the way we're living our life that just shows there's a higher power at work here, and it's a sign of destruction for them. And on the flip side of that same coin, he says it's a sign of salvation for you, a sign of salvation for you, a sign from God. The power of the gospel lived out through us proves these things to be true. And one final way that we're proven through the gospel is when we suffer for it. Paul says in verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Living lives worthy of the gospel, striving together in one spirit and with one mind, and facing opponents is not a smooth and easy road as you might expect and as you probably already know. Well, Paul, praise the Lord, he loves the Philippian church enough to tell them this. Jesus himself, of course, suffered greatly to demonstrate his love toward us. And scripture actually says here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, that we are granted these experiences of suffering for him. While the experiences themselves aren't enjoyable, we should appreciate them. We should uh, properly appraise them, value them. James said, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, we should consider it joy. We should be thankful for these things, knowing what they bring about. We should be mature enough to see that, to understand that. And if we're not, we should mature. We should work on maturing so that we can do that. Christians in the first century suffered for the Lord, and Scripture records of them that they went on their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Our gospel-centered lives should be proving so much about Christ, about ourselves, and about others. Paul shared a lot in this first chapter of his letter to the Philippians here. There are so many lessons though that can be pulled from this, so many lessons that can be learned from this, but I leave you with these four that we've discussed today, and I leave you with these challenge questions to remind you of them and to cause you to look into that spiritual mirror and see what, what is there, what that reflection looks like. Are you participating in the gospel? Are you doing anything for the progress of the gospel? Do you, like Paul, honestly find your purpose in the gospel? And finally, is your destiny proven by the gospel?
As we finish things up here this morning, I'd like to ask those of you listening on the radio right now, have you obeyed the gospel? Before you answer that, let's make sure we know what the gospel is. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But what is it? What is the gospel? We know what it does. We know uh, the power that it holds. But what is the gospel? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4, through 4, the Bible interprets itself here. The, the Apostle Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So, there are three main statements that make up the gospel. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, Christ was raised on the third day. The Bible teaches us that his death paid the price for our sin, and his resurrection made eternal life possible for us. So now that we understand what the gospel is, let's get back to our question, how do we obey the gospel? I want to read Romans chapter 6, just verses 3 and 4 for you, and I want you to listen and see if you can hear all three parts of the gospel being played out here, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The Bible says here in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Did you catch that? Did, did you find the three parts of the gospel there? When we are baptized, the Bible says, we are baptized into Christ's death. When we are baptized, the Bible says, we are buried with Christ. And finally, when we are baptized, we are raised up as Christ was raised from the dead so that we too will walk in newness of life. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, please know that we would love to talk with you about your situation. We would love to answer any questions you have. We would appreciate the opportunity to discuss with you the costs of following Christ. If you're interested, keep listening, and we'll tell you how you can get in touch with us in just a moment. I'm Jake Brown, and on behalf of the church, I want to thank you for listening to today's broadcast. If you're in the area, I want to encourage you to join us in person at 10.30 a.m. every Sunday morning, 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. We love you, God loves you, and it is our prayer that He will bless you this week as you seek His truth. <laughs>